0: Our scripture this morning is from 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. So if you would like to take your Bible and follow along or the Pew Bible, Bible in the Pew, that passage is found on page 862. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5.
1: What's love got to do got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a Okay, just a little clip. Now, um, Carol told me that she had that in her mind all week this week. So, see, that really is my goal: is to leave a little clip of that so you'll think back and, and answer the question: What's love got to do with it? And the answer from the scripture is absolutely everything. But unfortunately, in our world, we tend to have a very poor understanding of love. We do see love as an emotion, as a feeling um, that will warm our hearts and bring satisfaction to our souls and and joy and companionship. But love is not an emotion. In the scripture, true love is defined as sacrifice, sacrifice the free giving of oneself to another. Because love demonstrates the very heart of who God is. This is why in the, in the very center of the book of First John, he defines what love is. And he, he says it this way in 1 John 3.16. Many of you know John 3.16? This is another 3.16 you really need to know. It says this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, Jesus defines love as not just laying down your life where you'd be willing to give your life for another person. But if we take it in the, in, in the way that Jesus is expressing it, it's not just that ultimate sacrifice where I'd take a bullet for someone else. It means dying to self in order to serve another. That's what that means. And it's something that should be a part of who we are as followers of Jesus every single day. So that's why the working definition, at least for me, uh, during this series is when we answer what's love got to do with it, it's this. True love is sacrificing oneself, dying to self, to serve the good of another. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. We're going to look and explore these next few verses in uh, in. In the letter of 1 John. But 1 John is a little different than some of the other books in the Bible in the style in which it is written. What John does is he picks up many of the themes that are in the Gospel, but he 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 goes through them repeatedly. And um, in some ways, 1 John is a very simple message, but it is incredibly profound. And and John is at the um, the later years of his life, and he's writing as a pastor who dearly loves the people of God, and he's saying, when it all comes down to it, here are the things that I really want you to take away. If if this is the last message that I'm able to give to you, I want you to hold on to these three things, and there are three themes that flow through this letter of 1 John over and over again, and here they are. The first one is this, Jesus is fully God and fully man, who came to bring us into union with God and to overcome our sin. That's the most important part of his message. That's why he begins with, um, in the first four verses, he talks about how he is an eyewitness, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, concerning Jesus, this we're proclaiming to you. So he's saying, I want you to know who Jesus is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good man. He is God in flesh who came out of love for you and for me to do something absolutely incredible. The second theme that runs all the way through this book is one that we don't hear much about in our culture and even in our churches, but it is this, take sin seriously. When we understand that sin is not just mistakes, it's not just um, things that we do wrong, Sin limits you from becoming who God created you to be and enjoying the life, fulfillment, love, and joy he wants you to experience. You see, sin is what prevents union with God and fellowship with each other. In fact, we'll explore this in a little bit, but if you're in a conflict with another believer, you need to know that at least one of you is struggling with sin. It may be both of you, but it's a result. It may not have anything to do with that other person, but our sin affects one another. And so John in his letter is telling us to take it seriously, not because he wants to beat us up, because he wants you to have life unhindered and full of joy. And then the third theme that resonates all the way through this book is that if we are united with Christ through faith, then love must drive everything that we do. Because obedience and love go together. In fact, they are one in the same. Well, let's pick up now on these, these verses and, and see how those, this theme comes out. And we'll, we'll see how hopefully we can somewhat apply this to our lives today. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's a profound statement. He's giving a comparison. He's showing the quality and nature of of who God is because he wants us to understand him. And I want you to notice something that's very important here. Um, One of the things that John does so beautifully is that he shows us where to begin whenever we're wrestling with a question. He begins not with us, not with the question, but with God. That's where we need to begin as well. If you're struggling with something, you need to begin with who God is. The Christian life begins with God and not with us in everything that we do. And so he starts with this statement, this bold statement that God is light. What does that mean? Well, think about what, what light is. Light is the first thing that God created. It flowed from his likeness. He spoke, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And when you read through the account in Genesis, you'll recognize that God created light before he created a lamp. Now, I don't know if you've thought about how significant that is, but it's huge. There, you know, we think of light, when we, think, when we read through Genesis 1 and we read, God said, let there be light, we think he created the sun. But in the account of Genesis, the sun doesn't come about until day four. Light existed before the lamp because light is, enough, is a, a illumination from God's presence. That's why in the book of Revelation, it says there's no need for a sun by day or a moon by night because God himself is the light of the new Jerusalem. Light flows from who he is. OK, so it's, it's when he's when John is saying this, it's not just a little analogy. It's not a simple prop like one of Drew's weird ones. It's something huge, okay? And and light has some significance. Light enables and sustains all life just as God does. Without light, life goes away. Without that warmth, without that electromagnetic energy, plants don't grow. You don't live. There's no heat. We don't exist. Light also makes life more secure and more comfortable. When you hear a noise in the night, what's the first thing that you do? Yeah, after you picked up whatever's sitting next to your bed that you're using to um, a- attack the intruder that you're afraid coming in. You grab the bat, the cricket bat, or whatever it would be here, hockey stick. You grab that from your, <laughs> from your bedside and then you go turn on the light to find out who's, who's making the noise. Um, And you'll usually find out it's one of your teenagers if you're a parent. So there you go. Um, Light makes life more secure and comfortable. Light reveals what is hidden. This one is huge. Light and darkness cannot coexist in the same space. Light and darkness cannot occupy the same space at the same time. It is fundamentally impossible That's one of the reasons why he uses this as an example because it's also an understanding of how our sin and God's holy righteousness are opposites just as light and darkness are and they can't occupy the same space. But here's the good news. Light always overcomes darkness. You cannot turn on the darkness. You can only put out the light. The moment, no matter how dark a room is, no matter how deep of a cave you may be in, the moment that you turn on a light, it defeats and pushes back the darkness. Because that's what God does as well. He always overcomes darkness. The substance of the message, um, God is light, that John is talking about, is 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 very significant john in fact in in his writings he does three things where he says god is this first one here god is light he also in john 4 24 in the gospel he says god is spirit and those who come to him must come to him in spirit and worship him in spirit and in truth and then in first john 4 7 and 8 he says god is love all of these are characteristics of who God is. There are descriptors where we wouldn't truly know what light is, what love is, what spirit is without knowing something of God because their very nature are connected to who he is. And so when John tells us God is light, he's taking the message that he heard personally from Jesus and he's, he's compacting it down to saying something that uh, all through the the Gospels, Jesus was talking about, he makes it succinct and says, God is light. Now, it's been interpreted in in different ways by different scholars, uh, and all of these interpretations have components of, of what it means when it says God is light. First of all, it could be a description of the visible manifestation of God's glory. Whenever you see, recorded in the scripture, the Shekinah, which is God's glory, being revealed like in the tabernacle or over the tabernacle or in the the pillar of fire that that guided Israel, it's always seen as light, as a brilliance. And so it could be part of that manifestation of God's glory. Secondly, some have seen this statement as a a reference to God's self-revelation, that God is a God who reveals himself to us, and he certainly is. Just as light reveals things, God is revealing things to you and to me. He's wanting to get our attention right now. He's wanting us to know him. But most likely, what he's referring to here is that in the context, when he says God is light, he's referring to God's moral perfection, that God is absolutely perfect. And it works so much better when I turn on the microphone. Man, God is perfect. Drew is far from perfect. So there we go. What it means is there is not one blemish, one stain, one mark or sin on the character of God. He is absolutely holy and perfect. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, I, I want to give you, so speaking of props, I have, I have one and I need a volunteer um, to help me today. Any, um, anyone named Joe want to lift up their hand? Okay, because if, if somebody would have raised their hand right away, I would have picked somebody else. But, but actually, I need, I need uh, come here, Tom. Tom, you can, you can, you can do this. Tom, you're, you're going to be our lampstand, okay? All right, so uh, I want you to hold that up and shine it at, at us, okay? Shine it close and high. I, I want you to notice, look behind you. What do you see? Shadow. A shadow. You have a shadow. Would you, would you leave your shadow behind, please? Come on, come on. All right, all, right, all right, well, it goes with you, doesn't it? All right, okay, well, how about this? Um, we, I have a shadow as well in this beautiful shining light, but which one of our shadows is better? I uh, well, See, I would argue. I think yours, is, yours, is, yours, is, yours, is, yours extends against the wall. It's more distinct. Comfy. Well, more comfy. Okay, anyway, thank you. We both have a shadow. Anybody here, anyone in this room not have a shadow? Is anybody? Alex. Alex. Go shine the light on Alex and prove him wrong. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Now, why a silly thing about shining? Oh, I see. I see his shadow. There we go. Every one of us has a shadow. But did you know God doesn't have a shadow? Now, some of you who know the scripture really well, you're going, the first thing that popped in your mind, it goes, but it says that he will cover us with the shadow of his wing in the Psalms, and it does. But that means a covering. It does not mean that he puts a shadow. It means that it's a comfort and protection. What it says here in the scripture is that God is light, and in him there is no what? What's a shadow? It's darkness, right? God doesn't have a shadow. Now, he could create one if he wanted to because he's God, so he can do whatever he wants to, so don't go too far trying to drive yourself crazy with that. But the, the important thing that we want to, to yeah, use... <laughs> and, and we're back to the theme song. Okay. <laughs> wow, I need help today. All right, here we go. Um, what I want us to, to, to see is that part of what John is illustrating is the shadow of sin and self is your and I's problem. It's the challenge that we have. The fact that we have a shadow is simply a reflection of the fact that we are not all light. Now, what we can do, there's two different ways to try to hide your shadow. You can try to go into the darkness where your shadow will be blended into the darkness around you. And in fact, that's what in the gospel it says when, when Jesus says, men, men, and women love darkness rather than the light. It means that they want to hide their imperfections, their sin in the darkness of the world around them. Because what happens is when light shines on us, it reveals that every one of us has a shadow. Every one of us has sin. And I want you to think about it. Does doing good things make your shadow smaller? no. And, and, and can you really, even though I tried to compare my shadow with Joe's, it, it doesn't matter. Our shadows reflect not just what we do, but who we are. That's a picture of sin in our life. It's a condition that we have that there is absolutely nothing you and I can do to get rid of our shadow. We can try to hide it in the darkness, but the only way to overcome a shadow is to become so immersed in light that there is no place within you that casts a shadow. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for you and me on the cross. He's taken your nature, my nature, your darkness, my darkness, and he's shined his light all around it in such a way that there is no shadow in our identity when it comes to our relationship with God. When you think about it, you know, it's, it's as if he takes us at the very highest point of midday at noon and shines us directly with his radiant righteousness over you and me and says, this person, even though their nature was sin, they now are clothed in my righteousness. And the shadow is gone. That's what Jesus does for us. But he wants us to recognize that whereas he's taken away that nature of sin, even though we still sin, he's taken away the penalty of it, our shadow, our sin still is a barrier to our fellowship, to our union with God. And so what he wants us to do is learn to live in the light. And think about it. There are a few things that are more enjoyable than walking out into the brightness of the sun and allowing its rays to just shine down upon you. And that's just a lamp. You know, the sun has darkness in it. It's not perfect. It's simply a lamp, just like my little lamp that I have here. But God's light is absolutely pure and perfect. So how do we overcome the darkness? John says this, this is the message that we heard from him this means from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What he's saying is if what we're living doesn't match who we say we are, then there's a problem in our life. Even though we say we're of the light, we're walking in darkness. So there's some dark walls that block our communion with God. And the first one is that legal wall, the wall of sin. This is the one that Jesus tore down um, through his death and resurrection. And only by faith in Jesus Christ can you overcome the barrier of sin and allow us to come into the presence of God. Because remember, light and darkness can't occupy the same space. If we in our sin were to go into the holy, pure presence of God we would be destroyed just as a shadow is destroyed. But Jesus has given us his nature, his light, so that we can come into a relationship with God. Does that make sense? I know it's an analogy, but I, I'm hoping that it helps to connect the pieces. This is what Jesus was talking about in that very familiar passage, the other John three sixteen. Let me read it to you again, but I'm gonna read it to you a little more in the context. and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They were trying to hide their deeds in the darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. What he's saying here, as Jesus is speaking these words to Nicodemus, He's saying, God loved you so much that I have come to give my life for you. The perfect holy one, Jesus Christ, is coming to take away your sin and give you his righteousness so that you now can live not only in relationship and union with God, but you can carry forth his love and display it in the lives of others. And what they will see is God at work in you and through you. What he's defining here is that there are two different kingdoms and we have to be either of the kingdom of darkness or of the kingdom of light. So God sent his son, who's the exact representation of his character, into a darkened world so that he could restore our relationship with him. And when you believe, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you move legally from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. You're adopted. But if we don't place our trust in him, then we're left on our own. And when God comes, when Jesus comes, not as savior, but as judge, then the light of his perfection will shine upon all of our faults. And it doesn't matter whether we think our shadow is a little bit smaller than another person's, whether we think we're a little bit better than another person, because we're not compared to one another, we're compared to the light of God. And none of us can stand on our own. Jesus tore down the legal wall on the cross. And when we trust in Christ, we move from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of life and light. But there's a second wall, and it's a relational wall, the wall of self. Um, The reason a person walks in darkness uh, is because life is about them we're self-focused. Um, and we're going to expand on that in just, in just a little bit. But love-powered obedience to Christ brings down the relational wall and allows us to walk in his light, to have fellowship with him and with one another. And only faith in Jesus can bring down the barrier of sin, the legal wall, and it's only trusting in Jesus and asking him to work in us and through us that allows that relational wall to come down as well. It's his work, not ours. So how do we change? How do we learn to walk in the light? Well, in the book of Amos, there's a very important verse that says, We're two, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? We have to be in agreement with God. And so what I wanna give you today um, briefly are just some steps to relational change that come from this passage. And it's, it's where I began before. If you want to change, if you want to grow closer to the Lord, if you want to walk in his light and enjoy his presence, then here are some steps we need to take. Number one, we start with God and not ourselves. Remember who Jesus is. Remember that he is fully God, that he is perfect. This is what he means when he says, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In me... Even though I've trusted in Jesus, there's still a shadow of sin. And I am perfectly capable of living selfishly, sinfully. But I don't have to, and neither do you. Jesus has done all the work of salvation. He calls us to trust in him. But where we often go astray, the great danger in our theology, which is our approach, our knowledge of God, is that we often start with ourselves and think that God is somewhat like us rather than God being who he says he is and trusting in what God's word says. We have to begin with him. Because our problems often arise within the Christian life as a result of starting with ourselves rather than with God. Even as believers, we have a tendency to think we know God, we think we know what God is like, but we read into it based upon our own thoughts, our own convictions, our own wants and desires. And that can lead us astray. Because many of our problems, many of our struggles, many of our broken relationships are due to self-centeredness. Have you ever met a person who truly was self-centered that was also joyful? I don't think they exist. Because when we're so focused on ourselves, there there is less and less presence of God in our life, even in the life of a Christian, and so joy becomes almost impossible. Self-centeredness, pride, is the root of sin. According to the Bible, the initial cause of our fall was that having been created in God's image that instead of living a life of submission and obedience to God, humanity sought, sought, sought to exalt themselves to a position equal with God. You will become like God. That was the temptation in the garden, to be in charge. And it's that great failure that's affected us. But if that's true, then our great freedom is found in doing just the opposite, of making sure that we place Jesus in his rightful place in our life as king of kings over our heart, over our life. He is alone, the Lord. Let me give you four very simple words that maybe will help and I'll, we're, I'm going to have you say it with me. It's, it, they're really simple, but it's so important. It's not about me. It's not about me. That's, that's it. It's not about me. It's about Him. So we begin with focusing in on who God is. Secondly, we see in verse um, 7, well, let me read verse six first. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, there's a barrier of hypocrisy. We can't have have fellowship with God if we're hypocritical, if what we do and what we say doesn't match who we claim to be in Christ. Secondly, we see in verse 7, it says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that a beautiful promise? But God says, when you come to me and when you say, Jesus, this is really about you. My life is about you. It's not about me. When you come into that, we step out of the darkness into his light, into his presence. And he says, guess what I'm gonna give you as a result of you being closer united with me, I'm gonna make you more united with other believers as well. It's how it works. It is the natural outcome. This is one of the reasons why Jesus makes such an emphasis about us being unified as brothers and sisters in Christ, because it is evidence of the fact that we are in fellowship with God when we're in fellowship with one another. So we need to step out of the shadow and into the light, and we need to examine ourselves. In a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. And it's a time to examine our heart and see, is there sin that we need to confess? Is there a part of darkness? Is there a shadow in my life that I'm trying to hide from God and others that I need to bring into the light and confess before Him and give over to Him? When we approach the Lord's table, we need to take sin seriously. We need to step into the light. John goes further in his analogy to show us another barrier. It's not only hypocrisy that has to be removed in our relational barriers, but there's also another one. Here's what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us have a shadow. All of us have sin. And God wants us to take responsibility for our sin nature and for the acts and attitudes that we have. Um, and that goes against our pride. Our old nature wants to cry out and place blame on other things, on other people, and excuse our actions. But we, that's a lie. We're responsible. And so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and God's truth is not in us. So we need him to examine our hearts, to remove the hypocrisy, to set down the blame, and to be humble in the light of his presence. If your life is to be full of joy, then we have to get rid of everything that's false. That's why God makes a big deal about us revealing our sins, confessing our sins. It's not because, I mean, he already knows what they all are. So it's not because he's trying to to beat you down. He's trying to give you more life. When we see our sin, not as a weakness, but as the very enemy of our soul, then we want to step into the light. We want to have it be exposed so we can give it over to Jesus and be free of it. Isn't that what you want? Deep down? The problem is our old nature likes to hide in the shadow. We have two choices. We can try to cover our sin, but it will always be exposed by light. We can try to hide it or deny it and lie to God and others about ourselves, but that just makes it worse. The other option is to confess our sin. Admit to God and come clean before Him and with yourself. That's what He calls us to do in the very next verses. He calls us to confession to be cleansed of sin, to take sin seriously. Here's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All, oh, every bit of it. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What he's saying is take it seriously. Allow your life to be examined, your attitudes to be examined And again, the reason isn't to beat us up, it's to set us free. It's the difference between walking in the cold darkness and stepping into the light of a warm, sunny day and feeling that radiant warmth surround us. That's what God wants to do. He wants to give you that kind of fellowship. When we confess, what it simply means is that we say the same thing about ourselves and about our actions and our attitudes as what God says. We don't make excuses for them. We don't blame others. We simply say, God, this is, this is sin. It's rebellion against you. I'm sorry. But here's his promise. When we do that, he cleanses us and he fills us with his light and with his joy. John, as a pastor, is reaching out and saying, I want you to have what I have. I want you to have the intimacy, the union with God that I get to enjoy. And here's how you do it. Step out of the shadow, take sin seriously, and enter into his life. Jesus, knowing everything about you and I, every failure you and I would ever make, every rebellion, every time we've turned our back on him, every time we've hidden away from others and secretly sinned and were selfish, he knows all that about each and every one of us. And yet, how did he define what love is? He said he laid down his life for his friends. That's what he tells us in the gospel. No one has greater love than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, and that's exactly what he's done for you and I. If he loved you enough, knowing everything about you to die for you, can't you trust him with your innermost thoughts, with your fears, with your insecurities, with your sin? He loves you completely. And so the invitation today Is simply to come to the Lord and say, Lord, would you just, would you reveal anything in me that is shadow, that is sin? Because I want to bring it out into your light and confess it to you. Because I want your cleansing and I want to walk closer to you. The rest of the book really focuses in on love. But as long as we live in the shadow, we'll never, ever be able to truly love because we'll be insecure. So today as we come to the the table and we see that the bread represents Jesus' body that was given for us, knowing everything about us, and the cup that represents his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and to cleanse us and clothe us in his righteousness. It's a time of invitation and wonder to come before the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for inviting me to dwell with you and to enjoy the light of your presence. That's what this table ultimately is all about. And it's something, one of the beautiful things that God instructed us to do is to do it together. This is not something that we do necessarily one-on-one. It is something we do as the body of Christ because it's one of the things that connects us together in our union in Him. So before the band comes up and and those come to to serve us, I want to just ask you to bow your heads and, and pray. Would you ask the Lord to reveal in you any shadow anything that you've been trying to hide from him or from others? and would you have the courage today to simply confess it, to say the same thing about it that God says? Confess it before him. But there's a second part of your confession. Your confession is not just saying this was wrong. The second part of your confession, if you're to say the same thing about it that God does, then you need to say the rest of that verse. The Lord, as I confess it, because of what Jesus has done, you have forgiven me and cleansed me of all unrighteousness. I confess that you, Jesus, have, confe- have cleansed me, not because I deserve it, but because of who you are and because of the purity of your nature. You make us clean. That's a miracle that should absolutely blow us away. He makes us absolutely clean. And he welcomes you as a son, as a daughter to his table saying, you are mine. Lord Jesus, thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the way you have demonstrated your love. And so Lord, we come before you and ask that you would cleanse us of all of our sin, reveal any darkness within us. Lord, so that we can have greater union with you and we can learn to love others as you have loved us. Oh Lord, thank you for what you're going to do in our midst. Lord, I'm excited about the rest of this letter because it because how it empowers us to love like you love us. And Lord, that's my prayer for us as a people, that we will learn to love others as you have sacrificially, selflessly loved us. So we come before your table, Jesus, and we ask that you would cleanse us and unite our hearts together so that today when we walk out of here, Lord, we not only walk out of here in greater connection with you, but in true fellowship with one another. Thank you. Lord, it's a mystery that's beyond my understanding, but I trust in your word. We Pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. I invite the servers to come and just remind you that the scripture says that on the night before he was, he was bet- um, crucified, that Jesus took bread He broke it and blessed it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And the scripture tells us that he also took the cup and he says, this cup is my blood. It is um, my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is also the new covenant. It is my promise to give life, fellowship, and union with you. When we take of it, we're remembering his promise and his work, and we remember not only his death, but that one day soon he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, thank you for this bread. May we receive it with gladness. May we receive it, Lord, as a symbol of your immeasurable love for us. Lord, thank you for this cup. Thank you for cleansing us of our sin and clothing us in your righteousness. And Lord, as we go from this place, help us to live as a right reflection of who you have declared us to be, because our trust is in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that the the musicians come first and partake of the, the elements, and then you'll be invited to come forward and have the bread and the cup.